names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 69, Smurf Village. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And we are in the magical lands of Adshashir, a.k.a. Durham. Durham, North Carolina. Today, we are going to talk about mushrooms and fungi. Fungi? Fun guy, fun gal. Yeah. And um, what we're not going to do is we're really not going to like talk about identifying it, because as you might imagine with a podcast, that would suck. <laughs> uh, we do have some videos on our YouTube channel. Go ahead and plug that. Um, just a few. Uh, we have Chicken of the Woods, which we'll be talking about the cinnabar mushroom, and we even have a lichen one, rocking the tripe, right? Yeah, and chicken of the woods, by the way, is my favorite mushroom, so if I was going to have one video of uh, edible mushroom, we've already got that one on YouTube, so I'm glad of that. And chicken of the woods, uh, by the way, is also my favorite mushroom and one of the first mushrooms that I was introduced to formally, and mushrooms uh, being as amazing um, beautiful, edible, mysterious as they are. That's what really got me interested to do this episode. Um, we have some stories about mushrooms. I guess I'll go ahead and start with a, a short story about the chicken of the woods. So I was on this plant walk, as I've often mentioned, about I don't know, 10, 11 years ago. And one of the leaders of the group was just like, oh my God, is it? And the other leader was like, I think it is. And everybody was just kind of I don't know, maybe they knew what the leaders of the walk were talking about, but um, this herbalist that was a co-leader of the walk, he just came back with this giant flush of a bright orange mushroom. And I was wondering, like, what, how could he see it all the way from the trail? I mean, it is fairly unmistakable. I'm not going to say it's foolproof, but Chicken of the Woods um, we had that night for dinner, and it was delicious. And it is known as one of the foolproof four. Uh, you know, many mushroom people that teach it and uh, eat it, they say it's one of the first four that are like the hardest to mistake for anything else. And man, even if it wasn't delicious and smelled like chicken and tasted like chicken when you ate it and cooked it, just the appearance of it. I mean, it is gloriously beautiful, like a vibrant orange on top. And this beautiful, vibrant yellow underneath. And when you cook it, it turns like a lobster, like a cooked lobster red. Mm-hmm. Um, Teresa actually made a chicken salad with it. <laughs> like we found some when we were taking a walk, when we uh, not long after we met. And uh, you started experimenting and made chicken salad, which I'd never heard anybody doing. And it was actually really good. And we had a chicken of the woods and cheese sandwich. Mm, grilled cheese sandwich. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was super good. So there's a lot of edible mushrooms out there, and um, I just encourage you to really, really use the field guides. If you have access to a, uh, a person that knows mushrooms, maybe more than you, if you're just starting out to, to talk with them, because um, I don't know if there's any poisonous lookalikes to Chicken of the Woods. That's probably why it's in the foolproof form. Well, but... it's always a little tricky when you say lookalike, because that is in the eye of the beholder. So uh, most true. people say that it's a hard one to mistake, but depending on who you are, you could mistake anything for <laughs> anything else. I mean, my mom once mistook a uh, 
a chocolate lab that we own oh my due to God. her bad, ab- <laughs> by, bad eyesight for a little um, African-American boy across the street. And that was really embarrassing. Oh, my God. Honestly, it wasn't like a racist thing or anything. Well, we did smoke a little weed. But she went outside, and her eyesight was so bad, she thought our chocolate lab had crossed the street. And she starts calling, Bancho! Bancho, oh come over here! <laughs> it was one of our neighbors. And she came in so embarrassed, like, oh, my God. But, yeah, you can mistake anything for anything else. So lookalikes are a tricky thing. Um, yeah, and I would, to reinforce what Teresa's saying, don't be lazy. Look it up in a field guide. I t- always tell people when I used to lead mushroom classes, um, look it up in two field guides. Back it up. Because we have a phobia of mung- uh, mungus. A fungus among us. We have a a mycophobia in this country, and it is not a phobia that's shared in so many other countries. But part of what reinforces that phobia is we always hear the one story of somebody who poisons themselves and not the hundreds of stories of somebody who just had a good meal. And so often that one story turns out it's a mushroom expert, a professor, someone who should know more than anybody else about mushrooms. But you know why they often poison themselves? <laughs> Hubris. They got they, cocky. They they let the habits relax of checking it out and think, oh, I know my, my mushrooms. You know, I've got a degree on mushrooms. And uh, eat something without checking it out, taking a risk, poison themselves, and that's the story on the news. Exactly. And just because you mentioned the field guides, we have... The Audubon Society Field Guide to North American Mushrooms, of course, if you're in North America. And um, this one that we've mentioned before, I actually, I don't know if I posted the name wrong or what, but it's David Aurora, A-R-O-R-A. And the name of this book is Mushrooms Demystified, and it is a big-ass book. Yeah, and it's my favorite book. It's it's kind of a bear to use, so that's why we have two. Um, the Audubon is kind of quick reference, and the Mushrooms Demystified is like deeper information. But if you take the time to use Mushrooms Demystified, in other words, you're not in a hurry. You're not sitting down like feeling entitled, like I want to know this mushroom now. Mm -hmm. But you're sitting down like you're taking a mushroom class and let the keys, the the way he guides you through asking questions and everything, try to guide you to the mushroom. Even if you don't figure out what that mushroom in front of you is that day, you have learned so much by trying to track it down through this book. So it's a fantastic book, but treat it like a teacher, not like, you know, I hate these internet groups um, that are like for plants or fungus, even though they can be handy at times, but I think it, it encourages bad habits. You get something, you take a picture, bam, you're supposed to find out what it is. You post it. I think we're robbing ourselves of actually learning how to do things by doing that. It's too quick. You can't take shortcuts. So this book does not take shortcuts. And... I've used it uh, a, a number of times now. One mushroom that we were just taking a walk with the dog, I ended up collecting and making a spore print with. Just on, like, a, I think I had a piece of black construction paper from one of the camps we did. And so I just set the cap of the mushroom on top of this black construction paper with the, uh, the gill side down. And lo and behold, I removed the cap the next day and it was like this most beautiful pattern, like a, like a really thin petaled flower of the spores. And the spores happened to be uh, a, a unique color of like a light green. And that helped me to, I mean, I wouldn't say 100% identify, but it helped me to narrow down 
I was looking at maybe two mushrooms at the time of what this could be. And one of them said, like, it has uniquely colored green spore print. I would encourage you, if you're going out and taking a nature walk, even if you don't have a mushroom guide at the moment, see if you can pick the uh, the cap off of a mushroom and do what I just said. Like, if you have a piece of black paper, or even better, one half of it is black colored or dark colored and one is light colored like white yeah that's what i used to do i'd take a dark piece of paper and kind of overlap it on a white piece of paper and put the mushroom over top of both of them and it's beautiful and and as i've said for so many things in nature it opens your eyes to all the intricacies all the details of these beautiful structures and by the way mushrooms are the fruiting body of the mycelium that's under the ground that's really Pretty much, I'd say, the only way that we can identify what type of mycelium it is, is when it fruits and we see the mushroom at the surface. Yeah, and those spore prints are hugely important for identification. Um, I remember, like, this was many years ago, and I would pick different topics to focus all my energy on for the year. And uh, the first year, um, I was picking hazards. I want to learn about the things that have the reputation of being the most dangerous. And among them was mushrooms. You know, we hear about mushroom poisonings. So, um, you know, it's intimidating at first. There's so many mushrooms. They're so funky looking. Um, they're so ephemeral, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. But what I found that I could do at that time was to look up three mushrooms a day. And usually I'd find out what they were. Sometimes it was just the search of trying to find them. I'd learn things along the way. But I didn't realize at the time, because it was my first year keying into mushrooms, that that was a hugely, unusually bountiful year for mushrooms. So following years, I expected it to be like that, and it wasn't. And I was like, wow, I certainly picked a good year to learn about mushrooms. Um, But yeah, that was a pretty good pacing for me. Three mushrooms, you know, always dig down because you want to see how the mushroom comes out of the ground. Because another key identification for certain mushrooms, including... um, the deadliest mushrooms, which are in the group called Amanitas, um, which I guess we'll talk a little bit more of, but um, they're known for coming out of a vulva or a cup. And it's really important to see the bottom of a mushroom. So digging down just below the surface, getting the whole mushroom, plucking that cap off. Some people even start getting the spore print right there in their basket. They have the paper like in their basket, or at least as soon as you get it home, as soon as possible, try to get that spore print. And um, yeah, I learned a lot. And In case you were wondering, I have little factoids to sprinkle in like spores throughout the podcast. Oh, I see what you did there. Less than 1% of the fungus on this planet has been identified. Wow. There are possibly 5 million, some say a little less, some say a little more, that have not. And as recently as 2017, they have these reports, I guess, yearly, but I got one for 2017. 2,189 new species were described. And that means that you have probably already taken a walk through the woods (laughs) and seen a mushroom that has not been classified yet. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. (laughs) I mean, we tend to think like, oh, the scientists have got it all figured out. They've dissected everything. They've mapped every corner of the earth. But that's a lie. It's just, I mean, there's so much out there right in your own backyard that is not known in our own lives. Um, and before I forget, back to the Amanitas really quick, because you were given numbers and it reminded me of a number I wanted to give out. 80% of all mushroom poisonings are from people eating an Amanita. 
So I always tell people when I am teaching them about mushrooms, we're actually about to go on a walk with a guy that requested a mushroom walk um, two days from now. So this is a really good primer to get our minds working on the stuff to share with him. But I know I'm going to tell him, Amanitas, learn the Amanitas, learn the sign of the Amanita, like look up that family, what makes an Amanita an Amanita? Because if 80% of people who get hurt eating mushrooms, are it's because of mistaking this group, well, that's a group you really want to know before you start venturing out. I was reading an article that was talking about um, mushroom poisoning and and anything that's been done in the past that has worked. Just I'll just throw this in at this time. So in 2007, over the New Year holiday, uh, seven people, or sorry, six people were uh, diagnosed. They went to the emergency room of the hospital. They had eaten death cap mushrooms. Mm. Okay, so the name death cap mushroom. I'm not sure how this happened. The article didn't say, you know, if a kid, like, look, mommy, I got mushrooms, or like if somebody thought that they were getting something and, ooh, having a really, you know, nice holiday party and they're a mushroom expert and then they ended up like almost killing all their guests. But five of the six actually recovered with an emergency infusion, um, what do they call that, intravenous, or I guess, of uh, something that came from the milk thistle plant. Hmm. It's salimarin, but they they used it intravenously. Um, Salimarin from the milk thistle seeds actually helps to detoxify your liver. That doesn't mean you're going to survive, because like I said, five out of six did. Um, the, the, the last one that didn't was actually an old woman. But uh, yeah, so really be careful. And even if you are confident that it is the mushroom, isn't it good practice just to look it up one more time? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'd say. Like, I mean, I even look up chicken of the woods, you know, one of the foolproof four I've been eating for years, but I want to keep the good habits in place. If I'm in such a hurry that I feel like I don't have the time to look up a mushroom, I'm already on the wrong path. I need to recognize that. Why am I in such a damn hurry? Slow down. So that's really important. And uh, I don't want to scare people away from Amanitas either because (laughs) there are some edible Amanitas and uh, they're not a good one to start with, but there are Amanitas that you can recognize that are like, okay, I know that it's this kind of Amanita, like uh, Grisset, for instance, is one I eat. But uh, again, you know, keeping the reinforces those reinforcing those good habits, looking them up, and dying of mushroom poisoning is a bad way to go. Your liver dissolves in your body. Okay, that is really disturbing. Yeah. So yeah, eating mushrooms. <laughs> um, bon appetit. Yeah, we. I don't know why I thought this. I I've for my whole life I've not really been a mushroom lover. Um, wild mushrooms actually have kind of gotten me into eating more uh, mushrooms that are like the ones that you would typically find in the store. But I'd always see these like white button mushrooms, I guess they are, on a salad bar. And of course, I was vegetarian for a number of years. So I, I thought to myself, who's eating just these raw mushrooms? I don't know why I thought this, but I was just thinking like, I don't think that's a good thing to do. And I looked it up, and some sources that I've read say that um, if you're eating uncooked mushrooms, it contains a carcinogen. So, I don't know, science this, science that, but we always cook our mushrooms, and we tend to cook them in butter because that makes them taste delicious. And cook them well. And like so many hazards, I think, you know, we're kind of addressing worst-case scenario, you know, like safe practices for when you do run into that dangerous one. But I will say... um, 
Soraya Rose, who writes in sometimes, shared a story where she got lost in the woods and was <laughs> eating mushrooms that just had insects growing, uh, eating them. So she thought they were okay, and she was okay. And I have a similar story when I was younger. Um, you know, I thought the worst that would happen to me if I get the wrong mushroom was that it would make me trip. And I thought, great. So I remember for a while I was just eating random mushrooms. I'd see a mushroom and just eat it. And I love to tell the tale. So, you know, I just want to say that to put it in context, not to overblow the danger of mushrooms. But what you're preparing for is the situation if you run into it. That doesn't mean that, oh, my God, every mushroom is, uh, well, obviously that every mushroom isn't poisonous, but that they are that dangerous. There is a legitimate danger, but don't exaggerate it. And, um, and don't forget that a lot of our produce that we buy in the store is from one of the deadliest, if not the deadliest plant family, the nightshades. Mm-hmm. I interrupted you. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, You know how easy it is to derail my train of thought. Yeah. It's gone. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll jump back in there and say, um, of course, we're not suggesting that you go out and eat mushrooms without knowing what they are. And it is not foolproof to just look for bugs eating them and they're okay. So, um Highly recommend getting some field guides and or um, talking with someone that knows about mushrooms. Yeah, one thing David Aurora says in his Mushrooms Demystified is when in doubt, throw it out. Um, It's not worth risking your life for one meal. So if you're not confident, don't eat it. And that also includes if it's got, because a lot of wild mushrooms, you'll find them at varying stages. You might find them really, really fresh and amazing, and you've got a lot of water in them. So when you cook them, it takes like a long time to get that water out. And you might find them a little bit older, and they start to get like uh, crawly things. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I I used to run into this all the time with kids that would come to my camps. Um, They would be terrified of touching a mushroom. And I'd I'd sometimes Mm. hear their moms uh, if their parents were around, often their mom, um, you know, if there was a mushroom, they'd say, don't touch that. There's no mushroom you can't touch. Not in North America anyway. So, uh, you know, even the slimy, weird ones, it's not a, it's not poison ivy. So that's part of that mycophobia, you know, like don't even touch it, you know, don't give it a dirty look. Mm. Don't anger it. Um, mm. it's, as we're going to talk about shortly, um, mushrooms are hugely beneficial. Like they are the good guys. Um, so don't have that level of fear of mushrooms. They're our friends, but just like you treat your friends, treat them respectfully because they're not going to get walked all over. Well, they do get walked all over, but <laughs> they ain't going to put up with it. And so many other cultures around the world, um, I guess outside of the United States, God, dare I say there's a world outside the United States. Where? Like Eastern Europe and like Russia, as well as um, places, uh, Japan, oh, you Asia. You mean Western United States. Oh, right. Um, that's their, that's within their culture. They forage for mushrooms. And I saw an article that just happened to pop up on uh, Google, like the, the front page of Google for me. It must have known it's watching um, that right now during the pandemic, there's been like a lot of mushroom foraging uh, is the right time of year, I guess, the right conditions and people are bored and they want to go out and they love mushrooms. So they go out hunting for mushrooms and it's a connection to the land as well as to your food that uh, is severely lacking in the United States. And I wanted to share this story too. We were um, up in the mountains of North Carolina on the Blue Ridge Parkway. And first we saw this woman with her um, young kids Mm -hmm. and she was picking what I think was uh, reishi mushrooms or 
how do you say it? You're talking about the day we saw the woman from Russia? That day, but yeah, I was going to tell her story in a second. Oh yeah, this uh, woman with two little kids, and uh, yeah, they had a few little treasures, like we saw... I forget what caught our eye. It might have been the mushroom. But, mm-hmm. Oh, they had pigs with them, little piglets. That's oh, one that's of the things that true. caught my eye. They had a little pig following them around. <laughs> so, you know, we go up to the little girls and they show us their little treasures they'd found in the woods. And it looked like their mom was foraging some kind of plant by the creek. So they were kind of an interesting group. Yeah. Doing things you didn't see every day. And uh, shortly after that, same place, like the same pull-off of the Blue Ridge Parkway, we saw this old woman, and she looked like she might have been Russian, and damned, sure enough, she was. She was struggling with her dog and looked really grumpy, and I think we said something about the mushroom she was carrying, and she was sort of gruff with us, you know, kind of rude. Yeah. So I think that's maybe why she approached us later, because she felt kind of bad, like, oh, they were just curious. And she came up and was showing us the mushrooms she had collected. Now, keep in mind... What we were talking about, like know the poisonous mushrooms and definitely know that not all mushrooms are poisonous. This is a case in point. So Gumby, you have learned and have told me at least like about the Rushala mushroom. Yeah, the emetic Rushala. It's right there in the name, emetic. That means it makes you puke. So <laughs> every field guide says, do not eat the emetic Rushala. And for years, I've been like pointing to this mushroom. It's a really common one. Rushalas, one of the ways you can tell a Rushala is they break like chalk. So if you pick up like the cap or the stalk and break it, it kind of breaks real clean like a piece of chalk. Um, but the emetic Rushala has a really peppery taste. So what I do is I pinch a little bit of the cap put it in my mouth, and it was like eating pepper spray. It was super strong. And uh, then you spit it out, and you might be spitting for a good five or ten minutes because that taste <laughs> stays with you. Um, I even swallowed a little bit of my spit one time and felt a little nauseous after that. But, uh, yeah, this woman, she comes over, and she's showing us mushrooms in the basket. I'm like, is that a rushula? And, uh, yeah, she says she eats it. She just boils it, cooks it, and eats it. So that blew my mind. Yeah, and and this woman, you know, fair enough, she is from Russia. She has in her within her culture mushroom foraging and and wild mushroom eating. So she may have different enzymes in her body. She may um, have adapted more so to it than somebody that's like eating hamburgers in the United States. Um, it was really interesting to see that particular mushroom because we all think of it and and it didn't really um give me good feels to try and eat it still but to know that someone out there is eating it and i like that it shook my uh you know i guess i was kind of arrogant my knowledge like this goes over here this is in that category and i love it when i run into something that's like whoop you know no you're stupid (laughs) (laughs) it humbles me it reminds me of how much i don't know and i need to remember that And yeah, I felt so lucky that day to run into such an elder, this uh, old woman from Russia with this. I wish we could have uh, talked more with her and had more time. Yeah. And just to give you an idea of uh, another way that mushrooms are excellent, uh, we were, Gumby was saying like, oh, don't forget to say, you know, like the relevance of mushrooms in hobo life. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're edible. They're also medicinal. um, And they can be a source of income. And I want to jump in there with the edible part. Um, one of the great things about mushrooms is the caretaking is a little bit different. So mm. with the plant, um, you eat a plant, you're eating the actual organism. Um, so you, even if you eat the leaves and you leave the organism, the plant 
might live, um, hopefully, if you do it well, but you're still taking something that it uses to make, create its own food. It's photosynthesizing uh, anatomy. Um, with a mushroom, as Teresa said, the organism is underground, so it's like the fruit. It's like picking apples from a tree. If you pick all the apples from an apple tree, it's not great caretaking because the apple wants to propagate, but you're not going to hurt the tree. Next year, it'll go through it again and make apples. So it's similar with mushrooms. And uh, with some mushrooms, picking them actually encourages it to grow more mushrooms. So it can actually be good for the organism to pick these mushrooms. Um, and what I like is you can get so much food for so little work. Like if I see a big flush of chicken in the woods, five minutes worth of work. I've got a week's worth of food. Yeah, it's ridiculous how much you can get from yeah, that. I can't think of a plant that I can do that with. Like you get good food from plants, but you got to put in some work. But mushrooms are such a gift. And, you know, there's a few plants I can think of that have like really like standout, good, gourmet tastes. But uh, I think of that's even more true with mushrooms. For instance, I could go on and on about this, but just <laughs> one example. There's a mushroom called the candy cap. Mm, and this God, mushroom so smells like maple syrup. And um, if you bring it in your house and let it dry out, the smell gets stronger the drier it gets. So you'll like put it in your house and then you go out, do your errands, you come back, you know. The whole house has this sweet, wonderful maple syrup smell. And it's so sweet that people will often dice it up and put it on top of their ice cream. It's like a dessert oh, mushroom. Man. And when you start eating and studying mushrooms, it's full of these unique, interesting delicacies, these surprising flavors that uh, I feel like is even more true of mushrooms than plants. There is a mushroom that in Japan is selling for $369 a pound. <laughs> now, I'm not saying you can get that if you find chicken of the woods, but there are plenty of uh, restaurants, well, there was, <laughs> there was before the pandemic, that were incorporating more wild mushrooms on their menu. And chefs love this because not only does it add you know uniqueness to their menu, but they get to experiment with these wild foods. Yeah, it's a great way, from what I've heard, to make some money for somebody leading a hobo life if you make these connections, you know. I mean, a lot of people kind of doing the hobo thing want to be out in nature and uh, out in the woods anyway. So if you run into it and you've got that connection, um, I've heard you can get some really serious money, not just chump change, but like good money. Um, and I'm a little divided on that. You know, I feel like I kind of hate that I'm taking something from the woods and selling it as a product mm. to make money. But at the same time, unless you're completely free again, if you're still dependent on money as we are putting gas in the tank, it's, there's no way around that. No matter what you do, if you really boil it down and dissect it and think about what you're doing, you're turning something alive into something financially profitable. So I don't know. I'm a little divided on that. I haven't seen my way to trying to pick mushrooms to make money yet, but I, uh, I do keep that in the back of my mind as an opportunity. And we wrote down this year as we were exploring the Blue Ridge Parkway, I wrote down the um, locations of especially Chicken of the Woods as well as some other uh, beings to potentially revisit in the future because you never know. Um, you may be hungry. Um, something else I read just as an aside, I don't know if this is uh, – it's something that's, that, that gives you uh, an idea so I've heard if you're going to collect mushrooms, um, you don't want to collect them in plastic 
because they're so full of water that they'll just get all gross and squishy. Yeah, I always put them in a paper bag or even better, one of those flat cardboard trays. And even better, supposedly, from some people, I've heard uh, using a mesh bag or even like a basket, like a woven basket, so that the spores can be dispersed as you walk. Oh, that makes sense. I like the cardboard tray because you can get a spore print as you're walking. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah, I hadn't thought about, I mean... That's good for us as identifiers of mushrooms, but yeah, that's cool. The mesh bag for good for the mushroom. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. So where do I want to take where do I want to take this? In what direction? I'd say let's get into some of that interesting stuff you were learning uh, from Paul Stamets. Yeah, you said something, and I was oh, um, you were talking about like the collection of mushrooms, mushrooms and the mycelium uh, that grows underneath the surface. It's one of the few organisms on Earth that if you disturb it, it will grow more vigorously. Is that true of all mushrooms? It's the mycelium. So, like, I just took a crap in the woods this morning. <laughs> uh, let me check. Um, I, I, do you, when you say disturb it, do you mean picking the mushroom or disturbing the mycelium underneath the ground? Well, I think he was talking about the mycelium. Ah. Because what he said was... This is Paul Stamets of, um, he's, he lives in, I think, Washington State. And he wrote a book called Mycelium Running, which is fantastic. Oh, yeah, it's mind-blowing. It's got information you won't find anywhere else. So getting back to me taking a crap in the woods. Yes, I use please. a stick, uh, dig away the leaf litter and some of the soil. Do you use a stick? I do. No, I just finger hook it and drag the debris back. But okay, anyway. not the poop. I'm talking about the ground. I'm digging in I the ground. I'm talking about the ground too. So I'm digging away and at the ground, and <laughs> I see some white strands. It almost looks like a kind of a thick spider's web in the ground, and that's the mycelium. That's where the mushrooms come from. What Paul Stamets said was, if you scratch at the mycelium, it can create a new flush. Of mushrooms. Of course, there's a lot of circumstances: the moisture, the temperature, the this, the that, um, because mycelium is are they are fascinating. And mushrooms tend to like cool and wet. Is that right? I used to think, damp. Yeah, it, I used to think hot and wet because I think of mold. Mm-hmm. But like the weather to really go out, like autumn into winter. I mean, you can find mushrooms at any time of year, but like the big mushroom season is late summer into autumn, maybe into early winter. And the days to really go out um, that you'll have the best luck is following cool, wet weather. And I'll mention something a little later about the state of fungi in the world as it relates to the changing climate. So that'll be for later. Wetting our appetite. Yes. Uh, okay, so fungi was the first thing on land. It was the driver of evolution on land 600 to 1.2 million years ago. That's a big window, but that's what science does. Um, and so this I'm, fungus, yes. Sorry. So I'm picturing this landscape, like land, all the life like is in the ocean and it's super simple, like single celled organisms. You got blue green algae starting to photosynthesize and change the atmosphere. And when you say the first life on land, so I guess I'm picturing like a big barren landscape, rock rock and like lava flows that are Mm -hmm. solidifying and that the fungus is probably, like, I would imagine the first ones are super simple, like maybe molds, like colorful molds. 
Yeah, I'm not sure because I wasn't there, but it sounds good. Yeah, I mean. And the, <laughs> I love being dismissive on the podcast. Uh-huh. Um, the fungi contain enzymes that break down rocks. They eat rocks. And this is important because then it's creating soil. It's creating the environment for the next step in the evolution which was of lichens. land, which was lichens. Yeah, so, so through some mutation that nobody really understands, some of that algae happened to wash up. Like if you were an anthropologist back then, or a naturalist back then and somehow could survive the atmosphere, you would say plants couldn't live on land. Plants are water beings. Mm-hmm. There's no way for them to survive on land. But somehow this mutation happened where some fungus, maybe some simple molds, mixed with some simple algae and became the first lichens. And one of the things that blows me away about lichens is they haven't become one organism. They are still two organisms working together. That is cool. And from so far back, like now, instead of just colorful molds, we're starting to see lichens. And I would imagine they don't look too much different than what we see now. How successful is that? They've gone through, what, six extinction events (laughs) and have not needed to adapt. They got it right the first time. That's amazing. Everything else has had to change and adapt to this earth. The lichens just like, bam, they're on the land. And now, like most places you're at, most of you listening, I mean, you could walk out like, I don't know, not far at all, a short walk and run into some lichen somewhere. We, uh, A friend of mine and I went on a lichen walk. This was maybe about, I don't know, like seven years ago. And we were lichen lichens. We didn't get very far. Like the people, we parked in this parking lot and we got to the edge of the parking lot where there were some trees and that's about as far as we got because there were so many varieties of lichen that we didn't need to go any further. And uh, something that's cool if you can get your hands on one is a jeweler's loop. I think I got one online for like $7.00. Um, maybe you can ask in your community if anybody has an extra one, but just taking a magnifying glass and checking out lichens and also mushrooms. Um, so that's really cool. But yeah, this this fungus came up on land, started breaking away, breaking down the surface of the rocks, made the way for lichens, and then we started having more complex organisms, the plants. All plants are part fungus according to my research. I'm not a scientist. Yeah, I'm not. I'm trying to reconcile that with what I've heard. I've heard that 80% of all plants cannot exist without their fungal partners. So, like, they need the fungus um, in the soil connected to them to exist. So I wonder what that means to say that all plants are part fungus. Well, yeah, I didn't realize that the mycelium, the strands, those that, like, cobwebby stuff in the ground... It actually penetrates the cell walls of yeah. plants and trees. It doesn't just like, it doesn't just intertwine on the roots. I thought, so, I don't know what I thought. Well, they'll show you little pictures of the mycelium underneath the forest, and it always looks like it's connected just to the roots. But yeah, that that surprised me too to find out that it goes between the cells into the plants, and even somewhat with some of the cells pierces the cell and grows inside the cell. It's actually in the plant. It's redistributing nutrients to plants from rocks and from other areas of the environment. Mm. The mycelium 
is a communication network. Um, some people have cute names for it, like the Wood Wide Web mm-hmm. or Nature's Internet. Um, it's trading all the time nutrients for carbon. For the things it needs, it gives something in return. And there, I, I didn't want to get too much into all the different types of like saprophytic and epiphytic and all these types of relationships, parasitic, because to be honest, there's just so much to cover. Those could be like whole podcasts in and of themselves. But I just thought it was so interesting that we think we're like the top dog. We think if, you know, something doesn't speak our language, then it must not be uh, communicating. It's Paul Stamets has gone on record and he says this is a sentient being. Yeah, it kind of startled me in one of the things we watched where he's saying it's a sentient being. It knows you're there. Oh, yeah. Like, it's been shown that it responds. Like, when you walk in the woods, the mushrooms are aware of you. They know you're there. He says, uh, mycelium is sentient. It knows you're there. It leaps up in the aftermath of your footsteps trying to grab debris. And Gumby and I were thinking about it. Like, if you stood there long enough, it would eat you. Because that's what it does. It, if you're if you're there long enough, it's probably going to think that you're dead. Yeah. And it's going to start intertwining around you and sending up the, the strands of mycelium. And when you think about the implications of that, what stays in one place for that long? <laughs> Rocks that it Oops. does indeed eat. Plants that it does indeed uh, penetrate and become connected to. Or... Animals that are dead. They've stopped being animated. Mm-hmm. So it makes a lot of sense to think like you're walking through the woods and the mushrooms are aware you just passed. And they start reaching up to investigate, is this a source of food? Is this something to connect with? Um, one experiment he talked about that kind of helped me imagine what this information transfer underground was like is they did an experiment where they had, I don't know, I don't remember how many, let's say four little bean plants. And they, they introduced aphids. They were in separate containers on one. And uh, that little plant um, ended up producing chemicals to try to combat the aphids, but not the other bean plants. Then they put them all in the same container. So the mycelium connected these bean plants, introduced aphids on one, and kept it, you know, confined to that one. All the plants ended up producing chemicals wow. to fight the aphids. So that's amazing enough. But actually what's happening in the forest is more amazing because it's not confined to species. It's almost like this mycelium is this giant ancient organism that is sort of, it's almost like a farmer, but I hate the anthropocentrism, the the tone of that. Mm. But it's trading nutrients back and forth. It's caretaking the forest. It wants it to be healthy and it's, it's taking care of its food source. And who knows what a mycelium feels, but you know... To me, taking care of your food source sounds so objectifying. I would imagine it's much more than that because the mycelium is connected. But it's just amazing to me that, like, this is the bridge. This is why they call it the Internet of the Woods because it's connecting all these different species. Oh, a tulip tree over here needs more of this? Let's send it up here and let's borrow it from this oak who has plenty. You know, it's actually managing the forest in a way. Yeah. And... Um, that's something else that I'll talk about with the, uh, the climate change of how nutrients are being dispersed mm. and how climate change can affect that. But yeah, oh my God, it's, oh, it's so amazing. And Paul Stamets, like Gumby said, Mycelium Running, that is an awesome book. Um, so the mycelial strands, they're called hyphae, are the external digestive system and lungs 
of the fungus, which is pretty interesting. And I heard in this one um, video that there are like tendril type things. They're called arbuscules um, mm. in the mycelium, arbuscules. And they actually eat these little tiny creatures called nematodes. They like wrap, they wait, they make like a little lasso. It's um, like a snare. Yeah. They, they set a trap for the nematodes in the soil, these little tiny microscopic things. And they wait until a nematode comes through the lasso and then it tightens and it absorbs the nematode. It eats it. Yeah. And that external digestive and, uh, respiratory system didn't mean that much to me until I started oh, yeah. understanding how closely related they are to animals. Would you be willing to talk about that next? I will do my best. Okay. Yeah. Um, great segue. <laughs> There's this word that I really have been trying to say, um, practicing it. So it's called opisthaconta. Damn, that was good. It rolled right off your tongue. I hope so. I, I had to write it like O pies the conta. Um, it's a it's considered a super kingdom. So you have like the kingdoms, phylum, class, all of that taxonomy stuff that I don't really know about. But it is a super kingdom that bridges it, it includes, it encompasses animalia, the animals, and fungi. And the implications of this are that we as humans are more closely related to fungi than any other kingdom. And, you know, that was interesting that fungus are more related to animals than we are to plants, than either one of us is to plants. But that confused me when you first brought up that super kingdom. So here's what I think, if uh, if anybody else shares this confusion, because I was taught the five kingdoms, animals, plants, fungi, um, protista and monera, and those are single-celled organisms with a true nucleus, single-celled organisms without a true nucleus. So when Teresa's telling me there's this other kingdom, this super kingdom that includes animals and fungi, I'm like, how does that fit in? Like, what, what goes in that kingdom that's not already in fungi or animals? But I think what they're discussing is a kingdom back in time. A kingdom that, like, is our shared ancestors. I think what they're trying to say is that we come from the same ancestors, which we all, all life comes Mm -hmm. from the same ancestors on the earth. But the fungi and the animals share a more recent ancestor than either one of us do with any of the other kingdoms. Is that how you interpret that? I'm going to say yes, because it's easy to say yes. (laughs) And it's easy to listen to experts like Paul Stamets and nod your head and be like, oh, yeah, wow, that's really interesting. And then you try to explain it to somebody. So (laughs) I really like how you explained that. Um, The mycelium breathe in oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. Just like we do. Just like us. And Gumby, I think you said this, that we are... The mushroom people? Yeah, the implications of this are huge, because think about it. If we share a common ancestor that's more recent than any of the other creatures, and if the mushrooms are more ancient than the animal kingdom, then that means that the animals are a branch off the mushrooms. That means that every animal is, in one way of looking at it, a mutated mushroom. So, yeah. We're the mushroom people. (laughs) I love that. And the use of fungi by humans 
dates back well into prehistory. There was actually this Neolithic Iceman from the Austrian Alps named, well, they named him Utzi. Um, he was 5,300, well, this was 5,300 years ago. He wasn't 5,300 years old. Um, and he was carrying two types of fungi. One was Fomus fomentarius uh, that is known as the tinder fungus. So he's traveling in this very um, snowy environment. He knows how fucking hard it is to make a fire. (laughs) And he's got this fungus. And when they found him, it was like an ornamental thing. It was like beaded like on a strand of something. And they were like, what is this? What could this possibly be? Um, And it turns out that this fomus fomentarius or fomentarius, um, it helps to hold embers or or the... uh, what am I trying to say? Coal. The coals. For days. And it can also start, you can use it to start a fire. That is why they call it the tinder fungus. And it also has medicinal properties. And it still exists today, by the way. Yeah. Um, what else did I want to say about that? God. Well, I remember them talking about it was also a talisman. They thought that yeah. uh, the way he carried it, um, they were like, well, it's not exactly the most practical way if you're just using it as like a tool. It's almost like a totem. Like, they just had such respect for the mushrooms that they they thought of them as, like, just carrying the mushroom with you brings, like, good medicine, good energy, a totem. Definitely. And I think I want to kind of uh, branch off of that and just talk a little bit about the medicinal aspects of mushrooms. Once again, mushrooms being the fruiting body of the mycelium. So this guy, I keep talking about Paul Stamets, you as much as Gumby and I go back and forth on like, you know, sciencey stuff and like using science to help the problems that science created, it really is fascinating. Yeah, I want to say this really quick about Paul Stamets. He's, uh, I mean, my God, like he's, he might be coming up with the cure for how to save the honeybees. You know, he's, he is a really interesting scientist. And some scientists, I'm really interested to see what they discover. Even though I don't agree with the, the, the premise of science, how they uh, do things often, it doesn't mean that I can't learn from what they're discovering. Um, and one of the ways I diverge from Paul Stamets, you know, we're going to talk, we're already talking about a lot of the, the really cool stuff he does, mm-hmm. is he is a scientist. So, you know, he's coming up with all these solutions that are incredible, like including how to clean up oil, oil spills with mushrooms, because um, the, another experiment they did was they had three piles of like mulch that were full of oil. They put an oil spill in these things. And only one of them did they inoculate with mushrooms. And the mushrooms, like, I forget what time period. It wasn't that long, maybe a year. I don't know if it was even, I think it was like a couple weeks. Might have been. Um, Broke down the oils into sugars and produced big flushes of these mushrooms. Oyster mushrooms. Oyster mushrooms, yeah, which is another one we run into and eat. eat. It's a really easy one. I might have been, (laughs) might be one Uh. of the foolproof four. It's really easy to identify. But uh, these mushrooms came out, and they said they were edible. Like, I would think, oh, you don't want to eat them. They're doing their job. But they said they had already broken down the oil into sugars, and they were delicious, edible, nutritious mushrooms. And then, Mm -hmm. keep in mind, these other piles are still dead. And stinking like hell. Dead and stinking. Dead and stinking. (laughs) Dead and stinking. And stinking. And these mushrooms, insects started coming in and eating the mushrooms. (sighs) 
and the insects brought in things that ate the insects. And before long, this, this hill was not only clean of oil, it was full of plants that are bringing in insects, pollinators. It's an oasis. Yeah, the birds were eating the insects and then pooping out seeds, which then grew into plants. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> I mean, if you if you need an example of the power of mushrooms, of what they do for us, for the earth, for life, bam, there it is. That experiment is such a beautiful demonstration of that. Now, here's where I, I diverge in Paul Stamets. He's not questioning civilization. Mm-hmm. He's figuring out how to make civilization work by allying himself with the mushrooms. And it sounds like he's not just a cold, objectifying scientist, that he really is respecting the life of these mushrooms. But uh, I just can't get on board with that. I'm an anarcho-primitivist. I feel like anything short of not living the way we do and maintaining this philosophy that we have, it's not going to work. But uh, it's really interesting what he's doing and what he's finding out about mushrooms. But yeah, I disagree with him on that. Something that's uh, fairly relevant to the times now that we've got this COVID-19, et cetera. Um, Paul Stamets is enamored with this one type of giant mushroom. I think it's the longest growing mushroom. It can grow over like 80, 100 years. And it grows in the old growth forests around um, Washington State, Oregon, British Columbia. You know, the old growth forests that you may have heard are being um, cut down. Well, it's called agaricon, and I think he said Dioscorides, like from ancient Greece or something. So many cool words. So many words. Um, had mentioned in one of the writings that was saved through history, through all this time, that, um, I think it was agaricon, that this mushroom was good for consumption. Uh, and there's been scientists who have studied it, and... Blah, blah, blah. You can watch the videos. I'll, I'll try to post all these awesome videos on our Facebook page. But Paul Stamets has come out saying, like, it is good against flu viruses, which I don't really understand, like, the whole COVID, coronavirus, common cold, flus, and, like, H1N1 and stuff. But he has proven through scientific research that this particular mushroom is, like, a like a, a cornucopia, a pharmacopia of amazing, um, what am I trying to say? Medicine. And so many of the mushrooms, if you have like a beginner's familiarity with mushrooms, you might be familiar with oyster mushrooms, chicken of the woods, uh, turkey tail, things like that. All of these mushrooms have powerful medicinal properties. And uh, again, I want to direct you back to Mycelium Running. Like, that's the the book that, to me, opened my eyes about, like, whoa, this fights cancer? And then he goes on to talk about all the great things it does for the ecosystem. I love that. He doesn't just stop with what it can do for us. It's like what it is doing for the forest. And I just want to point out that Paul Stamets was born and raised in Ohio. Nobody's perfect. And he went to be, like, a lumberjack, which is ironically, well, not ironic to you, but my uncle wanted to be a, uh, a lumberjack as well. That must have been a big thing in like the 60s and 70s. That's like the manly thing to do. So he went out to be a logger in the Pacific Northwest and got to a point where he was doing really, really dangerous work. Like people on his crew were dying. And then he was up because like everybody else had died. And he decided to go back to school. And he has a bachelor's degree. And I'm not saying he only has a bachelor's degree, but this man is amazing. I'd say 
almost as amazing, if not as amazing, as mycelium itself. And his first attraction to mushrooms, as many of us are first attracted <laughs> oh. to mushrooms, was the trippy mushrooms. Oh, we'll get to that, too. <laughs> McKenna. Yeah. So, all right, more more interesting stuff. So I talked about agaricon being a, a, a medicine um, that has been known for, for thousands of years. It's not something that... Uh, people didn't know back then before laboratories, but now they're confirming like, oh shit, they were right. As well as, you know, indigenous tribes like that Utsi, the guy that was carrying the uh, Fomus Fomentarius. You know, if your tribe names you Oopsie, it's probably going to like... <laughs> Utsi, Utsi. Close enough. Um, in 1928, Alexander Fleming, famous scientist guy, he left his window open in his science lab. I guess that was, you know pre-air conditioning. Someone faulted. Fungal spores <laughs> blew in through the window and landed in a Petri dish. He noticed that there was a line where the bacteria in the Petri dish stopped growing. It was prevented from spreading. These were penicillium fungal spores. Hence, we had penicillin. Oh, can I talk about... I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, oh, wait, one, one more thing. The enzymes in the penicillium spores kept the bacteria away. Fungi and bacteria are sworn enemies. All right. Yeah, that's good segue for what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> so for the most part, bacteria and fungus, as you said, are sworn enemies. So when you get something like certain types of fungus, they are so good, like penicillin, for fighting bacteria because they've been doing it since the beginning of life. <laughs> yeah. But here's something interesting. It's hard to find antifungals, things that fight fungal infections. Because? Because we are so closely related to fungi that if they're antifungal, they're anti-us. That's amazing. Most things that would hurt fungus hurt us because that's how closely related we are. So for that reason, it's a little bit easier to find things that fight bacteria and much harder to find effective ways to fight fungal infections. Yeah. And if I can, I will mention one of those in the near future. Um, so, yeah, so we've got, you know, all sorts of different drugs that are being discovered and synthesized from mycelium and mushrooms. Another one I just want to mention, cyclosporin comes from a fungi. It was discovered in the soil in Norway as well as Wisconsin. It grows in like cold areas in the soil. And it helps prevent, uh, among other things, it helps prevent organ rejection after organ transplants. Um, these, these medicines that are being discovered are strong antibiotics as well as antiviruses, um, antivirus and there was even a very common fungus, aspergillus, that grew, it's in the soil virtually everywhere, that has restored antibacterial properties to our antibiotics that weren't working against superbugs. There's something called AMA, I scribbled it, aspergillomerasmine, that has been synthesized from this very common fungus, fungal spore in the soil. Um, not to mention, you know, fermented beverages, gumby, beer, beer, as well as wine and other, um, beverages, mead, for example, made from honey, uh, 
we were watching this other documentary that was like Fungi, the Third Kingdom, and they were talking about a hypothesis that civilization may have, the grains may not have been for making bread. They were actually growing grains to make beer. Yeah, they said those grains that uh, 10,000 years ago, the dawn of civilization, you know, it's always credited to agriculture. And so they're not uh, questioning that, the agriculture being growing plants for our own purposes. But we always imagine that means food. But they were saying, actually, the grains they were choosing, when we look at what they had to pick from, might lend themselves more to the fermentation to make alcohol. And the reason why they may have been interested in making alcohol, aside from the obvious reasons, is because as there were more people in concentrated areas, a.k.a. civilization, all of these little um, bugs, all of these little germs, if you will, they were able to more easily transport themselves through human communities. And if there were a lot of people in one place, they were pooping a lot in one place, which then contaminated their water, which is how these diseases spread, was through the poop and the water. And then they were drinking the contaminated water. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah, so alcohol might be one of civilization's oldest medicines. So when you go to that bar and you're having your beer after a hard day's work, um, it's not just this, like, vice, you know? It, it is part of a tradition. Of course, we can abuse it like any other medicine. But that habit, that... that uh, desire to drink that beer, that alcohol, actually has deep roots in our civilization. It helped people to survive. And it's part of our relationship, again, with these fungus. <laughs> and there was, there was something else that Stamets said. This is kind of where I'm going to transition into, like, uh, magic mushrooms and, like, uh, more spiritual experiences here. So Stamets was talking about mushrooms and fungus being used uh, actual mushrooms, he said, were being used in beer. Um, there were people that were making these beverages that were celebrating in the forests. And they were what we would call polytheistic. They felt like, you know, there were gods and goddesses in the forest that were giving them these these gifts. And the monotheistic religions came in and said, no, no, you got to come to church. Um So that was the end of that party. Yeah, a big part of this monotheism, you know, one God um, that kind of came with it is you can't talk directly to God. Um, You need an intermediary. intermediary. So uh, there was that's kind of the beginning of this this control, you know, that we see in in India. Both Jesus and Buddha were reacting to uh, this religious control, this idea that you need a corrupt intermediary to talk to God for you, and they will tell you what God thinks. Both of these people were saying, you can go directly to God. And these mushrooms that Teresa's talking about, you know, that was part of that, because you take these mushrooms, and you're having huge, profound journeys, insights uh, into the universe. You don't need a priest, necessarily. Okay, so one time... (laughs) I was at this thing called the Good Time Boogie, And it's basically a bunch of old hippies that get together and it's kind of cool. It's like one of those things that it's, it's like a 
almost like an ephemeral commune. Like, you put a little bit of money in, everybody gets to eat for the weekend, you don't have to worry about buying food, people are making food, you just wander around and, like, eat and drink, and uh, there are drugs involved. And I, being the pure prude that I was, had never really done any drugs. So my boyfriend at the time thought it would be really funny to introduce me to magic mushrooms. Cue the magic mushrooms and a tightening in my skull that led to hours upon hours of uncontrollable laughter at nothing <laughs> and some really interesting imagery, visualizations, walking around in the woods in the dark with red glowing eyes looking at me and having to use the bathroom really bad and not knowing which way was down. <laughs> um, and then I was walking and it was like I had pulled my face off like a mask, like one of those... What are those things called? They're like kind of, they're usually porcelain and they're like happy and sad masks that they used to use in dramas or whatever in plays. It was like that. Like my face had been pulled away from my face, but I was looking through the eye socket still. I was like walking behind myself with a little space in between. Now, I could go on and on about what I think about that. Uh... That was really a profound experience. And I don't remember the percentage, but it's like, uh, I don't know, like somewhere around 90, 95% of people that have done magic mushrooms count that experience that they had as, if not the most spiritual, one of the most spiritual, um, profound experiences of their life. Do you have any stories? Not really. Oh. I mean, I've done, uh, I tripped on mushrooms. I was doing a lot more LSD at the time, so I don't really have anything that I think would add to that story. Well, we were watching, there, okay, I don't know that much about Terrence McKenna. I just started watching these really long documentaries of Terrence McKenna talking for like three hours at a time. Gumby and I was, we were watching like two of them the other night. And, He's an interesting guy. I can't <laughs> say that he... I, this is what I'm going to say. He has some interesting stuff that he has um, hashed out in his brain and or uh, communicated with other beings about. Yeah, the first thing that I cued in Terrence McKenna on was his stoned ape hypothesis. Oh, yeah, that was shared in a, a really cool animated video that, I'll, again, I'll try to share on our uh, Facebook page. And part of this hypothesis, I mean, so the, the simplest version is that our ancestors, like distant ancestors, before they were, you know, you might see them and consider them human, um, were wandering around, you know, like upright on two legs, and they were eating things. And they were encountering these magic mushrooms and that he's considering like, what if this is the basis for our uniquely human version of consciousness? Because when you think about what mushrooms do to our minds, the geometric shapes, the, the visualizations, he's saying like, aren't these kind of the foundational building blocks of the way we think? And um, I know you were really like thought it was interesting when he talked about the the, the try with the cattle. Yeah, so you've got, um, oh boy, 
you've got um, our ancestors, uh, apes, if you will, that are beginning to come down out of the trees into the savanna. Something happened. I forget if there was like an extinction event or if there was something that it reduced the um, amount of trees or increased the amount of savanna. And these apes, again, if you will, are, uh, they're starting to walk on the ground and you're in a group of apes and you're, you're leading your group of apes and you're hungry and you see these things that are growing, um, as you are hunting animals. So the animals, whether they are deer like, or, you know, giant, I don't know, giraffes or whatever they are, they're pooping. All right. And things are growing from their poop. So while you're hungry, because you haven't found an animal yet to hunt and kill, you're eating these mushrooms that are growing out of the poop and you're starting to trip. And it's kind of fun, but in low doses, evidently, it increases your visual acuity. So there's actually an evolutionary advantage to eating these magic mushrooms. Yeah, and you were wondering what was happening globally. Uh, we investigated that a little bit when we were researching the fire people, one of our episodes. But the earth was warming. Mm-hmm. And so the earth was warming. That was making things drier. And fires were becoming more of a thing, mm. which was creating more of a savanna. So those creatures that could, there were less trees. It was getting harder and harder to be arboreal. So those animals that were terrestrial, they theorized that that kind of pushed us to like, be more two-legged, be uh, taller to look around, you know, to be more upright because without a forest climbing through the trees, you know, that's how you adapt to that environment. And I think it was Terrence McKenna, Paul Stamets was also also talking about the same thing. He called it the stoned ape hypothesis instead of a theory. But I think it was Terrence McKenna who, the, the tri thing that you were saying, the triple thing, was cattle goddess. No, cattle, mushroom, goddess. So you have the animals, okay, cattle in this instance, that the people, the uh, the apes, pre, pre-humans, are, you know, following, trying to hunt. They're seeing the poop. There's the mushrooms. The mushrooms lead them to these existential, spiritual experiences where they're seeing fractal patterns and, like, those type of experiences are growing, like you were saying before, like they are expanding literally the size of our brain. Input is coming in that we're having to figure out, like, what is this? What are these patterns? What are these, what is the landscape telling me? And so our brains are growing and evolving. So yeah, that was really cool. And that makes me think of, like, uh, India, you know, where we still have, like, the sacred cow. Yeah. You know, I wonder, like, people often, and this is what I thought, well, it goes back to, you know, pastoral life, you know, that the cow provided so much milk, meat, leather. Um, And I still believe that's part of the reverence for the cow, but it throwing this added bit of information in, it's kind of interesting to think, what if part of what the cow offered was the mushrooms growing in the scat that mm-hmm. seemed to be a gateway to the gods. And yet in that documentary, that one documentary, Terrence McKenna was saying like the religion, like people want to go to India and have this, you know, super spiritual religious experience, but it's been so sanitized. It's been so, um, 
uh, what's the word? Higher, it's become so hierarchical that all of the magic is out of it. Even in Buddha's time, like I said, I mean, 2,500 years ago, he was finding it uh, the same way, that this is not the way to freedom or anything, you know, sacred and meaningful. So Buddha was rebelling against that. It seems to have been, uh, as you say, sanitized for a long time now. And if you're not sure about, you know, Buddha and, and India and all of that, it's been proposed that Santa Claus was actually uh, some shamans, the Sami, I think it's pronounced, shamans that lived near the Arctic Circle, who were known to ingest the Amanita muscaria, um, the fly agaric, and they were flying after that, <laughs> and they had their reindeer um, so the reindeer also ate the Amanita, so they were all kind of tripping. Man, how would you like to have had that first mushroom trip, the first person that saw Santa Claus? That sounds like a good damn time. <laughs> Do you want to talk about anything about um, Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda? Um, well, let's see if I can transition into this. We're talking about Terrence McKenna, and, uh, you know, he talks about this trip that he went. He took his younger brother with him and a couple of friends, and they end up... They're trying to contact this indigenous tribe and, uh, you know, take some hallucinogens that they have. But while they're waiting, which they're waiting for a long time, they see this psilocybin mushroom that they recognize. And it's growing everywhere. And so they decide, you know, they're a bunch of hippies. They're like, well, you know, let's just take these mushrooms and enjoy ourselves. So they start taking a lot. And their focus <laughs> starts being on these mushrooms because... Like, they start having all these insights, including the sound. They start realizing, wow, do you hear that? Yeah, I hear that too. There's a sound. There's like a communication. It starts being a voice. And it seems to be a common thing. It's not just like, oh, that's my trip. It's like something here seems to be talking to us and trying to teach us things and show us things. And... um. In particular, we're watching this video. There is no reference to Carlos Castaneda or Don Juan in this video. I don't even know if Terrence McKenna ever read Carlos Castaneda. We're not, yeah, I, I, I didn't have a chance to see which one came first. But one of the things that impressed me is his younger brother started talking about a guardian that he'd encountered. And he said it was insect-like and huge, really big. Like 12 to 15 feet tall. 12 to 15 feet tall. Now... You know, if you're just listening to that and you have no frame of reference, nothing to associate it with, it's like, ah, oh, well, that's a, an interesting trip. Sounds Man, fun. you got high as shit. Yeah. <laughs> but I had read Carlos Castaneda, and Don Juan, his his Yaqui teacher, would his favorite um, ally um, to open Carlos Castaneda's mind is what he called the little smoke, which was a mushroom mixture, and um, he said it was super friendly. It was really forgiving. You know, there are other things like Jimson weed, for instance, he said could be really cruel. Like, you better watch yourself with this <laughs> stuff. But the little smoke, he said, is something that, kind of like the way Terrence McKenna described it, is something friendly that wants to communicate. It wants to show you things. It wants to share. And in one of the times that Carlos smokes this little smoke, he sees a little gnat and it's flying around his eyes. And, like, this stuff puts him on the floor. He's paralyzed. He can't move. And, uh... As this experience progresses, he sees this thing grow huge, this insect, this huge insect. He describes it as, like, huge. I mean, not 10 or 12 feet tall, but, like, you can't even measure it. Like, Huger. huge. And when he talks to Don Juan about that later, damn if the same word doesn't come up. Don Juan says, that's the guardian. 
that is the gatekeeper. Like everybody encounters that. So I found it so interesting that completely over here in a another time, another part of the world, not the Yaqui tradition, Terrence McKenna's little brother seems to have encountered not only the same entity, a giant insect, but the same name, the guardian. And something else that was said, I, I think in that same documentary, and this is this is far out there, <laughs> but just think of it, like just let your mind kind of munch on this for a little bit, all right? So we all, this is Terrence McKenna, basically. I'm trying to channel him. I'll probably fuck this up. <laughs> That's the spirit. We all think, because we're humans, that uh, the way the alien life is going to contact us is going to be a giant uh, spaceship arrives. And by the way, alien life, like we always think of that as like Star Trek, another planet technology. Yeah. I also think of that as, uh, as Don Juan describes, that there are worlds right here that aren't like a geography thing. There are other worlds that exist in ways we can't fathom. Exactly. So do you think that intelligent life is going to barge into our world and like be just as confrontational as we are? That's not a good idea. Shit, if they were intelligent, they'd watch us. They would find what McKenna said was a chink in our armor. What's our weakness? What's something that we actually do that that lowers our inhibitions? Alcohol, maybe. Maybe drugs. What if this alien life waited until someone took enough of a drug, in this case, magic mushrooms, and then talked to us? Because not only would they be able to come to us in a way that was peaceful, non-confrontational, but the person has already lowered their guard. They've lowered their inhibitions. So if you come out of your trip and you're like, man, I just talked to fucking like aliens and they were telling me all this stuff about their civilization and about our civilization, people are like, man, you got fucked up. But what if that's actually how we communicate? Yeah, and it's commonly thought that one of the reasons why we take drugs is because of lowered inhibitions. And we think that means, oh, you know, like you, you get to have sex with your buddy's partner and feel like you don't have the responsibility for that. Like, oh, it's the drugs, <laughs> you know, lowered inhibitions. Or you say things to people that you wouldn't usually say. But what if it's more than that? What if part of what we're seeking is that communication? And, uh, you know, he was saying, like, these mushrooms might be somehow like connected to what he's calling alien life and i thought it was interesting how he said like consider you know like if somebody's getting if somebody says they saw pink elephants and they haven't had any kind of inebriant you might think they've got a serious mental problem they need to be fixed it's an alarming thing but if somebody's drinking and said oh i saw pink elephants you laugh it off it's a time in our culture where anything goes. You can see anything, you can hear voices, you can have experiences, and it's accepted. Anything goes. So he's saying, if there was something that wanted to contact us, to communicate with us, wouldn't that be one of the most polite ways, one of the most respectful ways to approach us? And now for what Gumby and I are calling the Smurf Minute. Yeah, so we call this episode Smurf Village. And so 
right before we were recording it, like yesterday, I think, I'm like, why don't we find out, like, you know, we call it Smurf Village because, of course, Smurfs live in these mushrooms. Like, I wonder if they're supposed to be a specific kind of mushroom. Well, it turns out that was kind of going down the rabbit hole, and uh, Teresa found out all kinds of stuff. So are you ready for me to uh, give you your segue into the Smurf Minute? Yeah, let's... We don't want to spend too much time on the Smurf Minute because this episode is not about Smurfs, so that's why we call it Just a Minute of Smurfs. So, uh... Let's Smurf the Smurf out of this yeah, Smurf. Smurf this shit out. <laughs> Go! All right, so the mushroom that Smurfs lived in is actually the Amanita muscaria that we were talking about earlier, the fly agaric, and it is a psilocybin mushroom. So basically Smurfs were living in shrooms that they could trip on. The Smurfs were created in 1958 as a comic strip by a Belgian. His name was Pierre Culliford, but his nickname and pen name was Peyo. And the Smurfs that he drew actually wore a cap, this white cap on their head. We have a handy Smurf right here, a little figurine. Um, and it says, like, copyright Peyo on the bottom of his foot. Found him in an abandoned house. Yeah. And sure enough, he's got on a little cap. And this was considered by people in France during the revolution as a symbol of freedom and the pursuit of liberty. The cap was based on a cap that was worn by manumitted or emancipated slaves in ancient Rome that was called a Peleus or Peleus cap. But the Phrygian cap is actually displayed on many coats of arms as well as seals. And when I'm talking about seals, I'm talking about state seals and countries' seals. It actually appears on the seal for North Carolina as a red hat that's perched upon a staff that's being held. I love that there's a Papa Smurf hat on the seal of North Carolina. Yeah, and I'm not sure if we've reached a minute, but I'll just include this too because we love zombies. The village name, the actual Smurf village name in French... I'm going to butcher this, Le Pays Maudit, or The Cursed Land. And in one of the episodes that was written, I think for the comic strip, there was a zombie virus that turned the Smurfs black. Um, And this was a racially charged situation because Belgium was uh, colonizing places in Africa, like the Congo, And they didn't want to export this comic strip of, like, black-faced Smurfs to the United States because, of course, the United States, we have so many racial problems. So they changed the color of the Smurfs to purple for that version. And this has been the Smurf Minute. Well, did you mention the name of their village? Yes, Le Pays Maudit, or The Cursed Cursed Land. Land. Thank you for that Smurf Minute. And before uh, (laughs) before we leave psilocybin mushrooms, I just thought of something else. Uh, Terrence McKenna said... He said the mistake many people make with shrooms is they don't take enough. Mm. He says if you want to really use shrooms for this experience, this communication, to hear that voice, I think he said five grams. Like he said the first of thing you do mushrooms. is get a scale and take five grams of mushrooms. And like he said most people think he's crazy. They're like, I, I only take like one-fifth that much. And he's like, you know, if you want to have this experience and use these things the way he believes they're supposed to be used – you got to take enough of them. So just and, passing that along. And, uh, you know, other than my shrooms, I don't know what kind, psilocybin, little bag of shrooms I took when I was younger. I did just remember that there are these things called, uh, shoot, I used to remember the Latin name, um, but Big Laughing Gems. You could probably look it up, too, if you wanted. Yeah, that would take too much time. <laughs> but if you look up Big Laughing Gem, and they're the only ones I have found growing wild. And I used to take them every year around Halloween because that's when I'd find them. And uh, 
I never ate many of them, but uh, they're known to give you like a body effect and uncontrollable laughing. Um, but yeah, the last time I took them, it was when my social anxiety was really starting and I started feeling this hole. I couldn't tell if my heart had stopped beating. It was like a cold hole inside my body, like where all my, my gut should be. And uh, it scared me. And um, I just sat by a tree and I thought I was dying. But it turned that, that mental feeling of anxiety into a physical feeling. And, uh, oh. yeah, if I, if I knew how to approach it better, I believe there's a huge lesson in that. But it scared me. And uh, I've been kind of shy about mushrooms ever since. I don't know if that's something I'm just not ready to face. That's a really good point, actually. I wasn't going to bring this up. I totally forgot about it. But my mushroom experience, I actually um, had mushrooms twice because, you know, <laughs> fool me once. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, just like we were talking about in the beginning, uh, there are things to really know about mushrooms. And as much medicine and uh, opportunities for spiritual enlightenment, enlightenment, <laughs> um, enlightenment, I think it's really important to share this. I've known one other person who has had a similar experience after they took um, these psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, there's some evidence that, well, there's some evidence that psilocybin mushrooms can actually help in certain doses with anxiety and depression. And PTSD. And PTSD. In other dosages, again, I am not the hell sure how much I took. It can affect your levels of serotonin in your brain. It can actually, um somehow chemically do something to the serotonin in your brain. I call serotonin happy juice. And um, what happened after my mushroom experience was that I fell into a very deep depression. So that's why in um, previous episodes, as well as maybe future episodes, I'll mention like, I don't know how this came to be. I'm not completely blaming the mushrooms. Um, it's quite possible that the mushrooms opened me up to what's really happening in the world right now. And maybe I was just like not aware of it. And then all of a sudden it like smacked me upside the head. So be really um, reverent with these beings. It's not just to like pop some magic mushrooms and get high. I mean, you can do that, but just be aware that your trip may be something that changes your life. Gymnopilus spectabilis. I just remembered big, big laughing chip. So, um, you know, we, we talked about psilocybin. We talked about um, medicinal uses. There's also lion's mane mushroom. There's so many. Yeah, lion's mane. I've heard it's got good medicinal uses. It's not my favorite to eat. A lot of people talk about it, but uh, I, I just never like the flavor of it. It tastes kind of sour liked. to me. I kind of liked it. But, um, yeah, that's evidently being studied um not only for immunity properties to help with your immune system, but also your nerves. Like for, what is that? Um, oh, shoot. Is it multiple sclerosis? I think that's what it is. And it also helps with memory. <laughs> so maybe I should take some. And we were learning that, uh, what was that? I, I've no, I know, know it by the name as a varnished conch. I guess reishi. Yeah. But they were saying, like, this has been known to have all kinds of medicinal properties. But one of the things Paul Stemitz was talking about is that the mycelium itself is more potent. Yeah. Has more medicinal property than the fruiting body. Because if you think about it, by the time it gets to the fruiting body, all those chemicals, it's the end of uh, 
it's it's life cycle right there. It's it's putting out its spores, and the fruiting body is about to dissolve. And it's so ephemeral; it just comes up for a few days. Yeah, it's on its way out at that point. So if you know how to actually get the mycelium and use it, that is throwing up the uh, throwing up the fruiting body, the mushroom. It is more potent in medicine. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, and and Paul Stamets, like I said, this guy is, he's like laying in bed thinking about this stuff, and there are. Uh, you know, obviously neurons firing and he's making connections that the rest of us aren't. And so, again, I'm not saying I'm all for science beating science. I know we're running long. Um, but this is this is some interesting stuff. All right. Paul Stamets and his honeybee uh, hypothesis or honeybee theory, I think, at this point little bit of information about the honeybees. Yeah, I'd heard the honeybees were in decline, but I never could quite understand why, so this, this helped me. Honeybees, 100% of honeybee colonies are infected with the deformed wing virus. 100%. First, it started in commercial beekeeping operations, but eventually it spread to the wild. So when I say 100%, I mean 100% not just the domesticated kind because bees float all around they join wild colonies they wild colonies join the commercial bee colonies there's also a virus i i couldn't write it down it was like really fast in paul stamets one video but it has something to do with the queen bees it's like black spot syndrome or something all the queens have that so we're talking about multiple attacks at once Glyphosates that are found in pesticides, I believe like Roundup, as well as in genetically modified organisms, these crops that have, science has taken the genome of the plant and inserted pesticides into the plant so that it's better that, you know, we don't have to spray it. It's in the plant. And what could go wrong? Mm. I mean, how are the smartest, supposedly the smartest people, the scientists in our culture, doing shit like this and not thinking, what could go wrong? So these glyphosates, it has been proven that they decrease the bees' ability to detoxify their own bodies and therefore colony, bee colony collapse. Uh, there's this video, and it is well worth watching. It's like an hour and 20 minutes long. And I'll post that too. It's like Paul Stamets at the 37th annual EcoFarm Conference. This is in 2017. 2017, that's three years ago. I know he's, Paul Stamets has been working on this stuff, but, you know, we keep seeing time tick by. And, you know, pretty soon it's going to be 2030, then 2050. And, and where the hell are we going to be at? So this next part, I guess, is just kind of my um, my way of, having like a wake-up call. Um, Paul Stamets has said that 58% of our ecosystems no longer have species diversity enough to maintain those ecosystems. So like we just found a dead shrew today on the edge of a field and Gumby was saying like, you don't see these guys a whole lot, but there's a lot of them because they have to support. They're like at the at kind of the bottom. Of the food pyramid. So what Paul Stamets is saying is like honeybees, if the honeybees go, we're already lacking diversity in our ecosystems. The honeybees are in dire straits. If they go, we're fucked. 
if you didn't notice. Um, here's some information from 2018. This is a state of the world's fungi uh, document. The increase in temperatures worldwide are affecting plant health. There's a decline in tree nutritional status. Hello, trees are partly fed nutrients by mycelium. Animals' diets um, and the regulation of atmospheric carbon dioxide. Fungal growth increases with temperature until reaching a maximum and then it decreases. So in other words, fungus will hang in there until eventually it gets too hot. Also moisture levels. There's a decrease in fungal growth with lack of moisture or with excessive moisture. So Gumby, you had mentioned in a previous podcast that the world is getting hotter and wetter. Um, So what does that mean for fungus, for mycelium? Uh, Right now, mushroom seasons are actually doubled in length since 1950. This is true in European countries as well as in Asia and North America. This is conducive to reproduction, which is occurring later in the season because of climate change, but it's also increasing the release of carbon dioxide. So do you see what's starting to happen? Oh, we've got a longer mushroom season, but there's an increase in carbon dioxide, which is also affecting climate change. And as some of these mushrooms struggle to adapt, um, there are fungal infections that are appearing in parts of the world that they weren't before. And, uh, That's a great you know, segue. For instance, like Vancouver Island, I believe it was. Yeah, in I'm going to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. If you want to talk about it, go ahead. Well, I won't talk much about that since you already got that on your list, but I do want to say, well, it's on my mind. Keep in mind, when we say fungal infection, what we said earlier, this is an extremely hard thing to fight because we are so closely related to the fungus. Kill the fungus, kill us. And I wondered because we saw in this one video that like bats, for example, which, you know, arguably may have been the... uh, ground zero for COVID. Um, Global warming will bring new fungal diseases for mammals. And I wondered, how is this so? Fungi or fungi actually only became important human pathogens. In other words, it only started affecting humans seriously in the late 20th century, especially in immunocompromised individuals and particularly in uh, people who were infected with HIV. And I wondered, like, well, why is that so? I thought when, I thought the reason why we didn't get a lot of fungal infections, we as mammals, was because of our body temperature. So Gumby makes fun of me uh, for the the Carter through Trump presidential podcast because I say, now this is interesting. Now Gumby, this is interesting. I just read it this morning. The reason why we're seeing more fungal infections in mammals is because the difference in the temperature of the environment. And our bodies is decreasing. In other words, we're no longer too high of temperature for the fungal infections to not bother us. Oh, yeah. And that was another thing I remember I thought was so interesting is, you know, one of the last extinction events that wiped out the dinosaurs and everything, they said, well, first of all, when we're talking about evolution, you know, the first forests were these huge pillars of fungus. The first forests. 
Prototaxides. Yeah, they looked like big penises, huge penises. 26 feet high, 3 feet in diameter. Yeah, it was like a dildo for us. <laughs> and so after this meteor crashed into the earth and like blocked out the sun for a while because of all the debris, it killed so many plants that need the sun to photosynthesize. But the mushrooms stayed alive. They don't need to photosynthesize. They need light to reproduce to send up mushrooms, mm -hmm. but they can uh, survive on radiation. So for this reason, Paul Stamets expects that there might be fungus uh, living in space. You know, we might run into alien fungus. But anyway, this provided the mammals, which, you know, our earliest found mammal ancestor was something that resembled a shrew. Funny you bring up the dead shrew in the path. Mm. Um, but this provided the niche for them to start growing, multiplying, evolving, uh, diversifying. And uh, they said at this stage... Mushrooms, like, inherited the earth. Mushrooms became a more powerful organism because the plants were kind of bumped off for a while. Um, this is also, there was so much death where our oils come from, our gas, because the decomposition overwhelmed the decomposers, including the fungus. And so we started getting these pockets of decomposing things that couldn't be digested back into the earth well enough and got compressed and eventually turned into gasoline, oil, all this stuff. Um, but these mammals... He was saying that one theory why we're warm-blooded is because it's a defense against fungus, related to what you were just saying. So one of the things that pushed this aspect of being a mammal, of being warm-blooded, is because things that are cold-blooded are more susceptible to fungal infections. Mm -hmm. Funguses can really overtake them, but we're somewhat protected <laughs> by being warm-blooded from the funguses, and that might be part of of why we are warm-blooded because wow. of our close relatives, the fungus, who many of whom would just assume eat us. Whoa. Boom. Boom. Ew, you know what else I read? I didn't even have this written down, but I'll try to remember it. There's this woman. I think she's Japanese. Oop, your beer's about to, like, explode. Mm. Um, yeast. Medicine. <laughs> yeah. He's keeping himself healthy himself healthy. So there's this woman that is, um, she's designing special boxes that are inoculated with fungus so that when you die, it'll like help to decompose your body faster. And she's so into this that she's actually feeding this particular fungus, her fingernails and sloughed off skin so that it will identify her faster and decompose her faster. That's, I, I bet she's from Japan. And if you think that's crazy, speaking of Japan, <laughs> consider this experiment they did where they set up a maze. Oh, <laughs> damn! Good segue. Yeah. Now, <laughs> they're discovering how not just sentient that fungus is, that it knows it exists and knows where it is, but how intelligent it's it is. It's smarter than us. So they set up this maze and they put, maybe you have the details of this better. What did they put on the maze? Um rolled oats, like little oatmeal flakes that were the food source for the fungus. And after the, the mycelium put out little exploratory strands, hyphae, to explore the maze, it chose the most direct route to get to its goal. It, it found its way through the maze, just like a rat. And then they set up another maze that was based, based on the, the road maps. No, it was like the Tokyo subway system. The Tokyo subway system. And they performed the same experiment, and the mycelium found its way through the Tokyo subway system. And when they evaluated it, it was more efficient than their subway systems in Tokyo. It had found the absolute best routes. And the Japanese 
engineers who designed the, the, the subway system had not done that. Hmm. Oops. Um, something happened in 2001 that I don't remember. I know here in the United States, uh, September 11th, 2001, we were kind of distracted. But there was this case, or actually several cases, of people in, Gumby mentioned, Vancouver Island, Canada, being infected uh, with something. They weren't sure. It was infecting animals, dogs, dogs and cats, dogs, cats, and healthy people, not just immunocompromised people. And they found out that it was a fungal lung infection caused by cryptococcal gadii. This is usually only found in warmer and drier climates. Usually, um, it said in the tropics slash Australia. And what I'm, uh, I wrote down was drier climates, um, it lives in the soil. And as, as areas become drier, the dust, the soil becomes dustier and it's kicked up in the air and it's inhaled. Okay? So, there was another article... So this happened in 2001. It also happened in the United States in 2007 and 2010. Now talk about climate change. This one article I read this morning was saying that global warming and in particular tsunamis may be a vehicle for the spread of this typically uh, tropical fungus. As we mentioned, only a few pathogenic fungi are um, affecting humans, but the changing climate and the evolution of fungi are going to, there's going to be adaptations that create more problems of fungal infections in humans that once again, they're really hard to treat. We're not just talking about athlete's foot. And we're so distracted and panicked over COVID-19, which is basically an over-sensationalized flu virus. Oh, yeah. That, we ain't seen nothing yet, folks. That like, fungal, there ain't a mask big enough for what's coming. That fungal disease killed one in ten people. <laughs> one in ten that it infected. Healthy people. And it's going to keep getting worse, because what does this all amount to? Like, you know, what, what have we been talking about this whole podcast? The sentience and intelligence of the fungus. So if we're going to screw up the planet, the planet that everything else is equally invested in, we're the one species that can't seem to reconcile that we're invested on our planet, which means we need to take care of it since none of us are changing our habits. Man, COVID-19, what a joke. When these fungus and fungal infections and everything else is going to continue to come because we are demanding that we something else stop us wow yeah so my um i guess my somewhat final thought on this is we've got uh something happening on the planet i don't care what you call it i don't care if it's you know humans causing it uh corporations causing it Derek jensen some shit is happening and we need to recognize we better recognize that we are a part of this planet. Good luck if you want to go to Mars. Um, <laughs> you'll probably end up getting fungal infections there too. But as Paul Stamets points out, you know, mycophobia, there is some reason that scientists are not focusing on not only the medicinal aspects of 
mycelium and fungus, but also like how it is evolving and how it has been on this planet for so long. The largest organism on the planet is a mycelial mat that is 2,200 acres and one cell wall thick. Wow, and that's in eastern Oregon? That is in the Malheur National Forest in Oregon, and it is a, a um, species of honey mushroom. Armillaria. Armillaria estoii. It's 2,000 years old, estimated. How we can overlook such an astounding, phenomenal organism as fungus is complete nonsense. <laughs> How we overlook any of it. <laughs> it's like worth having GMOs and kill all the honeybees. I mean, God. I feel like, you know, as we talk about on this podcast, Escaping Society, um, increasing our appreciation of nature, of our interconnectedness and the magic that surrounds us. I mean, if you see, if you go on a walk, like Gumby said, you don't have to walk very far. And it there are... Um, Better times to find mushrooms. They have a presence. And remember, it's not just the mushroom. It's the network underground that connects everything. We better start paying attention. And I'm when I say pay attention, we better start changing our habits too. I'm looking at a mushroom right now. Her name's Teresa. Aww, the mushroom people. And I'm drinking a mushroom. Yeah. I mean, it really does penetrate our entire lives. Yeah. And I love bread. Um... Did you have anything else that you wanted to say? Because I'm not about... off the top of my head. I think that was really awesome. I'm sure, like every episode, we'll uh, call it done and then, like, oh, we should have talked about. That. Oh shit! I wanted to say this because I thought it was really cool. I knew it, it. This was in um that that documentary, Fungi: The Third Kingdom. The way they said it, it was so poetic. Fungi eat death, and in doing so, create life. Now tell me that isn't some mystical spiritual shit. No fungi, no life. Yeah, this is the planet of the fungus. Um, we didn't have any listener write-ins other than Soraya Rose that was talking about eating mushrooms. Uh, that we didn't have any that were left. So I'm reading Nicolas from Saint-Nicien, France, that I I never say right. French is hard, y'all. That's why you can practice. Uh huh. Je m'appelle Gambi, comment tu Okay. So, Nicholas wrote in a while ago, and it was in reference to our podcast on Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. And the reason why I'm reading this, it's not really um, super related, but you know, everything's connected. Um, Ted Kaczynski, uh, it has been said on the internet, he has a pen name, a pseudonym, and it is Apios tuberosa. Apios tuberosa being a vine that underground has uh, tubers that you can eat. It's called the ground nut. Other you're things. A, you're a ground nut. You're a ground nut. Other things are also called ground nut, but we're talking about Apios tuberosa, um, also known as Apios americana. And Nicolas says, on Apios tuberosa, oh God, now I sound Spanish, besides the facts that it originates from Mexico, and is a recurring edible plant as far as foraging and permaculture go. It may be worthy of a note that it has one or more voluble... I don't know what that says. Lianas. Lianas. 
one to five meters long, wrapping itself around any support it finds or crawls in default. When the conditions please it, it can possibly be stifling for other plants. Ooh, I just turned myself on. <laughs> Germinating in one to three months at Grr. 15 degrees Celsius, 60 degrees Fahrenheit, the tubers, very rich in starch, will be harvested on the second year. I think he was saying second year is better to harvest them. All metaphors open to interpretation. My own interpretations. <laughs> Some things take time to harvest. Some goals require strategic adaptation and demand profound security. Let's not be eager. Nonetheless, let's not fear oppressing those who oppress. Let's rejoice in reaching tactical aims. Oh, and the nitration of starch by a mixture of sulfuric acid and nitric acid produces nitrostarch, too. So he was trying to draw references to Ted Kaczynski's pseudonym, Apios tuberosa, and why Ted, Uncle Ted, may have chosen that name. Written like a true French revolutionary. And I don't, I mean, I, I can't study all this stuff, but I think I read that there's some form of fungus, I'm, sh I'm pretty sure there is, that interacts with Apios tuberosa to create a... Um, it's like a, a phytoestrogen or something. It's some sort of a, a compound that is anti-carcinogenic. So I, I just tried to tie that in. Um, if I'm wrong, write in. And I would also, by the way, love to see some spore print pictures. If, uh, if anybody wants to do a spore print and like take a picture and post it on our Facebook page, I would love that. I think mushrooms are so cool. Um, and if you have any comments, questions, additions to this episode, you can visit us on our website, escapingsociety.weebly.com. We're also on Facebook at Escaping Society. And as I mentioned earlier, our YouTube channel that has just a few videos. Um, Gumby, anything else you want to add to that? Actually, one thing just popped off a random thing on the top of my head. Uh, we were talking about the, um, Amanitas being dangerous. Puffballs are considered one of the foolproof four that are really good to eat, delicious. But uh, be careful of puffballs because when an amanita is first coming out of the ground, it looks like a puffball. You have to cut it in half. And if you see something that looks like the outline of a mushroom inside, uh, that's an amanita. So one of the easiest to identify edible mushrooms looks almost exactly like one of the deadliest kind of mushrooms at a certain stage. And I know that was random, but it, yeah. just, it just occurred to me. Yeah, and really seriously, when he says cut it in half, that could even be taken the wrong way. It's from top to bottom. Yeah, do your homework. Learn these mushrooms, especially if you're a hobo. <laughs> you know, it's a huge uh, skill to have, like a food, you know, a really good food. But don't be lazy, because if you get penalized by nature, I mean... Nature can be a tough teacher, and uh, nature would just assume, especially the way we're all behaving, recycle us into something more useful. Yeah. So thank you for listening, as always, and uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs>